there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of rape, murder, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Come on, hurry up. Shh, it's connecting. Now be quiet. Sheriff's Department, Deputy Sandman speaking. I need to report a murder. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. Well, you can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you're enjoying today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on the murder of Ovida Cricket Kugler, an 18-year-old waitress who was killed in Las Cruces, New Mexico in 1949. Well, last week, we covered the days leading up to Cricket's mysterious disappearance and the investigation that followed. This week, the story continues with incorrect arrests, alleged cover-ups, and a political scandal that rocked the state to its core. On April 16, 1949, four teenage boys went rabbit hunting in the Las Cruces Desert. They stumbled upon the badly decomposed body of a woman and raced home to report their findings to the police. Local waitress Cricket Kugler had been missing for over two weeks, and they thought it could be her. After enjoying a night of drinking, Cricket had attempted to walk home around 3 a.m. on March 30, 1949. Her friend, Luther Mosley, followed close behind to make sure she was safe. Police officers Lucero and Flores spotted Cricket drunkenly walking down the street and offered her a ride home. But she refused. Not long after, they saw her get into a dark-colored car and drive off into the night. Cricket had not been seen since. When the body was discovered, Deputy Sheriff Roy Sandman drove out to the scene with the rabbit hunters in tow. When they arrived, Sheriff Sandman witnessed a gruesome sight. The lifeless body of a young woman, strewn across the desert sand next to a mesquite bush. She'd clearly been out there for some time. Decomposition had taken its toll on the girl's small frame. Her clothes were pushed up around her neck, revealing discolored and loose skin. Her fingers and toes had shriveled and blackened into decrepit-looking claws, but her nails were unmistakably painted bright red. It looked as though someone had attempted to bury her. 
A few shovelfuls of sand covered the body and shovel markings surrounded her. The smell was so strong, Sandman had to step away to gather himself. Jerry Smith, the 19-year-old rabbit hunter who first found the body, noticed some tire tracks nearby. He thought it looked as if someone had driven to the location specifically to dump the body. 35-year-old Doña Ana County Sheriff Alfonso Happy Apodaca was next to arrive on the scene. As sheriff, he was responsible for all murder investigations in the area. But it seemed to most of the town that he had been resistant to investigating Cricket's disappearance. Happy hadn't questioned most of the people who claimed to have seen Cricket on the night she had vanished. In particular, Luther Mosley and professional football player Jerry Newsom, who had been competing for her affection that night. Both men spent a great deal of time with Cricket in the hours before she disappeared, but even 17 days later, Happy had yet to take their statements. To make matters worse, Happy had only collected a single piece of physical evidence. He had acquired one of Cricket's shoes, but solely because someone else had brought it directly to him. Jerry Smith watched as Sheriff Happy drove onto the scene. For some reason the teenage boy couldn't fathom, Happy drove past the body, circled around it, and then parked about 30 feet away. He had driven right over the original set of tire tracks, possibly destroying evidence. Jerry Smith couldn't be sure, but he began to think this hadn't been an accident. Happy finally got out and examined the body. He lifted her skirt for a moment and then said, that's her all right. He then paced around the site, swinging his arms in an agitated manner until undertaker Tommy Graham showed up for the remains. Hey there, Tommy. Appreciate you coming out. Sheriff, what do we got? Well, it sure looks like the Kugler girl. I reckon we're gonna need a tarp. Come on and take a look. Looks like she took some kind of beating. Her face is all skinned up. Is this how you found her, with her skirt pushed up above her knees? It is. There's no sign of her jacket, stockings, undergarments, or shoes, either. Sorry, I don't quite have the constitution for that smell. Oh, it's all right, Tommy. I don't think anyone does. Let's just get her down to the mortuary, huh? No way! That's a new hearse! I'll never get that smell out. I'll head back into town and see what I can do. All right, but don't take too long. I missed my supper over this. Sometime later, a local flower delivery truck came to pick up the body for transport. Body bags had yet to be popularized, so the remains were most likely transported in a canvas tarp. No precautions about compromising or destroying evidence were taken. The desert site was never roped off or processed, as we would now call it today, and there were no further findings. There was no photographic record either, because no one had brought a camera to the scene. It's unclear who officially identified Cricket's body at the funeral home, as no next of kin was notified. But it very well could have been Tommy Graham. He was part owner of Graham's mortuary and had known Cricket for eight years. However, no records were kept establishing any kind of chain of command with the body. With no official coroner close by, local surgeon Dan Maddox was asked to examine the body. He reported his findings to a hastily summoned coroner's jury. Gentlemen, thank you for making it on such short notice. I've been tasked with examining Miss Kugler's body. You're here to either concur or disagree with my report. I'm not a pathologist, and there will be no formal autopsy as her family cannot afford one. But I can assure you I've been as thorough as possible given the circumstances. Well then, let's get on with it. The body has to be placed in the casket now, so you'll have to take a quick look. The subject has minor lacerations and bruising on her face, arms, and legs. She appears to have received quite a blow to her left eye as well and suffered a skull fracture just above her left ear. The considerable damage present on the right side of her face suggests that she was struck with a blunt object. <clears throat> no x-rays were taken, but the skin is pliant enough that I was able to inspect her bones and internal organs by simply feeling around. Many of her vital organs have been smashed or flattened from severe trauma, 
and I could tell that her left collarbone was also broken. <gasps> oh, I've got to get out of here. That smell is terrible. The coroner's jury only viewed Cricket's body for a moment before exiting the room because of the stench. They supported Dr. Maddox's findings without question and agreed that an autopsy was unnecessary because of the cost. Cricket's death certificate simply stated her death was from an unknown object or person. Despite the fact that most of Cricket's clothes were missing, including her underwear, Dr. Maddox did not check for signs of rape or sexual assault. Though this wasn't entirely negligence, the body was so badly decomposed, it would have been impossible to determine if she had been assaulted by the time of the autopsy. Dr. Maddox also failed to collect any evidence from the body. He didn't take any samples of the deposits under Cricket's fingernails or even remove her clothes during the examination. However, this could have been because Dr. Maddox was not a coroner and not qualified to undertake an official examination. It was also possible that Dr. Maddox didn't think it necessary to collect evidence. He had been known to show disdain toward Cricket in the past. He referred to her as a barfly and disapproved of her active sexual life. Because of this, some in town believed his personal bias may have gotten in the way of his professional duty. Due to the extent of decomposition, Cricket's remains could not be subjected to the normal embalming process. But the smell of decay was too overwhelming to bear. In order to get rid of the odor and any larvae, Maddox decided to cover the body with lime. Quicklime is a corrosive and highly alkaline substance that causes mild to severe burns when in contact with skin. It wasn't uncommon for it to be used in some burials to prevent putrefaction that would cause odor. At Maddox's order, 100 pounds of powdered lime was poured over Cricket's body and sealed inside her casket. Cricket's mother was never asked if she wanted a formal autopsy or how she wanted Cricket's remains to be handled. In fact, she wasn't contacted by the police or informed that her daughter's body had been found at all. Cricket's family was left to rely on the newspapers for answers, just like everybody else. Reporter Walt Finley detailed the discovery of Cricket's body for the El Paso Herald Post. The more he learned about the case and how feeble the investigation had been so far, the more suspicious of Las Cruces law enforcement he became. He began to follow the case more closely as time went on. On April 18, 1949, 19 days after Cricket was last seen, her body was laid to rest during a quiet graveside service at the Masonic Cemetery, not far from where her body was initially discovered. But Cricket's body's safe return to her family only created more questions, and the entire town wanted answers. Sheriff's Department, happy speaking. Hello, Sheriff. Has anything been done about the Kugler case? I just feel sick about the whole ordeal. Her poor mother. I can assure you we're doing all we can. I've got another call coming in. Uh, bye now. Sheriff's Department. Hello, yes, I'd like to file a complaint. It's been almost a month and no arrests have been made for the waitress that was found in the desert. I don't feel safe letting my two daughters out of the house when there's a murderer walking free. <sighs> Sir, calm down. We're still looking into every lead, I assure you. Progress is being made. As pressure from the townspeople mounted, Happy felt compelled to finally take some action in Cricket's case. Yet it seemed to be nothing more than a performance. He only questioned the town's usual suspects, even though many of them would not have interacted with Cricket on the night of her disappearance. To make matters worse, Cricket's brother-in-law had also given Happy a list of suspects, but Happy still hadn't followed up with any of them. This was particularly strange as Luther Mosley and Jerry Newsom were some of the last men to see her alive. Around this same time, the owner of the Tortugas Cafe made some complaints to Sheriff Happy about the behavior of a regular customer. The Tortugas was one of the only establishments in town that had an integrated dining room. A local African-American man named Wesley Bird had been flirting with several of the waitresses, but the diner owner thought it improper for him to be flirting with women outside his race. Well, if Happy had bothered to check, 
he would have learned that Byrd had a volatile past. During his time overseas in the army, Byrd reportedly slapped and threw liquor on an Italian girl and was given a general discharge. At the time, interracial marriage was still a criminal offense in some states, and in 1948, Byrd had been arrested in El Paso, Texas, for marrying a white woman. He and his family fled to Las Cruces after. Once they arrived in New Mexico, Byrd's wife and children moved to Juarez to be with family, but Byrd had stayed behind to work. With his family away, he behaved as he wished. Happy knew that Cricket used to waitress at the Tortugas and wondered if she and Bird had ever crossed paths. On April 19th, the day after Cricket was buried, Happy tracked down Wesley Bird at a mechanic shop and decided to find out. You Wesley Bird? Sure am. What can I do for you, Sheriff? Do you know anything about Cricket Coogler? She used to be my waitress, but that's about it. I'm going to have to take you down to the station. I don't understand. Am I under arrest? Don't make this harder than it has to be. But I haven't... Despite there being no link between Bird and Cricket's death, Sheriff Happy struck Bird in the face and brought him to the police station. But Wesley Bird's life was about to get even more painful in the days to come. We'll learn more about the violence that followed Bird's arrest after this. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. On April 19, 1949, a black man by the name of Wesley Bird was arrested in connection to the disappearance and murder of Ovida Cricket Kugler. Though he was never formally charged with the murder, Bird was held in jail against his will for nine days. Happy made no official record of Bird's arrest, and the public was none the wiser. While Bird was held, the sheriff's office inspected his vehicle for evidence. It is not known if Bird's car matched the description of the dark-colored car officers Flores and Lucero saw Cricket get into on the night she was last seen. However, FBI reports state that the dashboard of Bird's car was blue. Sheriff Happy sent Cricket's red shoe to the FBI crime lab to be examined. The shoe had a blue scuff on it, and he wanted to know if the paint matched the car's blue dashboard. As the shoe was being examined, Deputy Sandman then searched Bird's residence. The deputy claimed he found a sweatshirt with red lipstick on the collar. However, the FBI has no record of such a sweatshirt. While Sheriff Happy had yet to procure any real evidence against Bird, he was determined to get a conviction. On April 28th, he, Deputy Roy Sandman, and Chief of Police Hubert Beasley drove Bird out to the site where Cricket's body was found. The three law enforcement officers beat Bird up in an attempt to get him to confess to Cricket's murder. When that didn't work, they turned to torture. The officers attached a bike lock and a padlock tightly around Bird's genitals. They hung heavily as he was forced to walk around the desert for hours. Despite what must have been excruciating pain, Bird maintained his innocence the whole time. He told Happy they might as well kill him because he wouldn't confess to a crime he didn't commit. Eventually, some of Bird's friends came looking for him, forcing Happy to formally charge his prisoner with auto theft, a completely invented charge. Bird's friends posted his bond and he was finally released. He had been held in jail for a total of 10 days. After his release, Bird sought immediate medical attention but refused to tell his friends what had happened. It seemed as if he'd been scared into silence. He left town a short time later, eager to put several hundred miles between himself and Sheriff Happy. After Sheriff Happy was forced to release Wesley Bird, he needed a new suspect. 
Word had gotten around that the professional football player, Jerry Newsom, had tried to force Cricket into his car, not once, but twice on the last night that she was seen. Happy brought Newsom in for questioning, but refused to let him leave. Much like Bird, Newsom was held in jail without charge or without being placed under formal arrest. So Newsom requested a lawyer. However, District Attorney T.K. Campbell told Newsom that he would file murder charges against him if he lawyered up. Out of fear, Newsom stayed in jail unrepresented. A day later, Newsom was told to take his car to police headquarters in Santa Fe for an inspection. He obliged and watched for hours as officers stripped his car to look for evidence. When the car was completely dismantled and with no evidence found, Newsom was asked to wait in a small office. Four hours later, police captain Ben Martinez finally came in to talk with Newsom. Well, am I free to go or what? I just talked to the guys that tore down your car and I gotta say, it doesn't look good. What do you mean? That car is brand new. If it's not returned to me in tip-top condition... Guess what they found all over the bottom side of your car? Blood. Can you explain why my guys found a ton of blood and a two-inch-long strip of skin painted all over your fenders? Why don't you just confess now and save us all the trouble? You hit Miss Kugler with your car and dumped her body. We know you did it. Just confess. I didn't have anything to do with her death. When I was following Sheriff Happy up here, he hit a chicken that was in the road. I was close behind and ran over the same chicken. If your guys found any blood on my car, it was from a chicken. I swear it. You really expect me to believe a whopper like that? I do, because it's the truth. Ask Happy if you don't believe me. The officer never tried to corroborate Newsom's story with Sheriff Happy. Newsom was sent back to the Las Cruces jail and held without being charged. On that same day, State Chief of Police Hubert Beasley arrived, determined to find out if Cricket had been hit by a car. Dr. Maddox, is this a good time? Well, I suppose it is, Chief. What can I do for you? From what I've been told, it seems like the Kugler girl might have been run over by Jerry Newsom's car. But there's nothing about that in your report. My job wasn't to determine the exact cause of death. I reported my findings and made conclusions based on that. However, there was no evidence on her body that would suggest she fell, jumped, or was shoved from a car. I guess we better exhume her to double check. But we filled the casket with lime. Surely we'd be able to recognize a tire track or skid mark on her skin, doctor? With all due respect, there's not going to be any skin on which to search for tire marks, chief. Look, I'm really here as more of a courtesy, Dr. Maddox. I'm going to exhume that body, and this time you'll have no part in it. A local doctor, Leland Evans, was brought in to perform a second examination. Cricket's body was exhumed on May 7th, only 19 days after she had been buried. It isn't known if her family gave the county permission to do so or if they were even informed. Dr. Evans' inspection of Cricket's body was performed under a cloak of secrecy. Guards were stationed at the doors of the mortuary. No one was to be allowed in, and no information was to be released, especially not to the press. Law enforcement was well aware by now that Walt Finley was champing at the bit for anything to report. An x-ray technician was supposed to be present for the examination, but for reasons unknown, none were there. The public health office hadn't even been notified. On May 9, 1949, Dr. Leland's findings were released in the papers. The lime appears to have eaten away at the remains, leaving only a skeleton to examine. I can observe a fracture line on the left temple. Small in size, the left cheek is fractured, as well as the jawbones. Moving down the body, it is obvious that there is a complete break of the left collarbone, but there are no other signs of fracture or breakage. The x-ray of the neck shows a shattered vertebra at the point where the neck joins the body. The subject very possibly died from a broken neck. However, I cannot determine anything conclusively due to the interference of the Lyme. I will amend the previous death certificate to read, cause of death of a violent nature, by unknown homicide, suicide, or accidental cause. 
Dr. Leland changed the wording on Cricket's death certificate, only slightly, merely adding that the death was of a violent nature, and his findings were essentially the same as Maddox's. He couldn't report anything to definitely support the theory that Cricket had been run over by a car, which is not what Beasley wanted to hear. Meanwhile, locals were growing suspicious of the timing of Beasley's involvement. It was curious that he just happened to show up hours before Jerry Newsom was accused of hitting Cricket with his car. Where had he been the past two weeks? Fueling these rumors when Beasley ordered the exhumation, he only wanted to look for tire mark evidence. To some, this looked like Beasley and Happy were trying to scapegoat Newsom. Many thought Beasley had been sent by a high-ranking Santa Fe official to help Happy block any investigative trails that could lead to the state government. Newsom remained in prison during the entire exhumation process and was barred from speaking to the press. But reporter Walt Finley had gotten word of Newsom's imprisonment and was determined to get the scoop. Finley convinced Newsom's wife, Mary, to smuggle a list of questions to her imprisoned husband. Newsom wrote down his answers and Mary delivered them back to Finley. In May 1949, the Las Cruces Sun News published Newsom's statement in an article salaciously titled, I was the fall guy. I didn't kill Miss Kugler. Lots of people are angry about the killing. The sheriff had to arrest someone. I was a friend of his. Looks like he selected me to be the fall guy. The New Mexico State Police officers keep asking me why I ran my car over Miss Kugler. I keep telling them I didn't. The story of Newsom's proclaimed innocence quickly spread. Local college students became enraged that a professional football star and their former classmate was being held for a crime he swore he didn't commit. Even so, Newsom remained in jail, where Sheriff Happy and District Attorney Campbell grilled him for days. Happy advised him to plead guilty to manslaughter. Campbell threatened to charge him with first-degree murder if he didn't take the plea. Without a lawyer, Newsom sat in solitary confinement, not knowing what to do. During this time, the outrage of local college students grew. Not only were they angered for Newsom, but by the lack of effort made by law enforcement to truly investigate Cricket's murder. About 300 students protested the injustices on campus and formed a petition. The petition requested that a grand jury be called in to investigate the entire Kugler case. The students wanted answers. While the grand jury request was under judicial review, District Attorney Campbell made an announcement to the El Paso Herald Press on May 10, 1949. What brings you in today, Attorney Campbell? I'd like to release a formal statement regarding Jerry Newsom. I'm all ears. Jerry Newsom has been released from custody on this date at 1 p.m. It is felt by this office that there is insufficient evidence to longer hold Jerry Newsom in connection with the death or murder of Ovita Kugler. It has now become official that the substance found under Newsom's car was not human flesh. Jerry Newsom has definitely been cleared in any way of being at fault or having any guilty knowledge of the death of Ovita Kugler and is completely exonerated. Campbell cleared Newsom even though he had been ready to convict him of first-degree murder mere days before. Many in town believed Campbell dropped the Newsom thread so that the grand jury wouldn't be called. Newsom was released, but the college student's petition had gained steam. When it reached well over the required 75 signatures, Judge W.T. Scoggin, Jr. had no choice but to select a jury. With Newsom out of jail, the grand jury was left to focus all of their efforts on cricket. However, Campbell was quick to point out that it was not the grand jury's job to investigate her death. They were not tasked with figuring out if she was murdered or if her death was accidental. Jury members were only responsible for investigating two things whether or not law enforcement had failed to perform due diligence when attempting to catch Cricket's killer, and to find out if any evidence had been overlooked. It seemed like someone was finally going to look into Cricket's case. The petitioners anxiously awaited news as the grand jury hearing began. District Attorney Campbell began to paint the picture for the jury of the events leading up to Cricket's disappearance, 
However, no eyewitnesses were called. The jury also wasn't allowed to talk to anyone of significance or look for any clues. The hearings had stalled before they ever really got started. One week in, jury member Russell Soper believed something fishy was going on with the proceedings. He said it seemed like Campbell couldn't collect himself to prosecute, and he seemed to be stalling for some reason. It took Campbell 14 days just to establish that a body had been found in a certain spot. The jury was getting nowhere, and after two weeks of Campbell's apparent stalling, the jurors had had enough. All rise for the Honorable Judge Scoggin. Be seated. Court is now in session. Before we start proceedings today, the foreman of the jury, Hal Cox, would like to approach the bench. Mr. Cox? Your Honor, this jury feels like these sessions are going nowhere. We've talked about it and all agreed that it would be in the best interest of Miss Kugler and the people of Las Cruces if we sought outside counsel. I'd like to introduce you to our lawyers, Byron Darden and LaFell Omen. Byron? Thank you, Mr. Cox. We'll take it from here. What is the meaning of all this? You realize no one's on trial, right? Yes, we realize that. However, it has come to our attention that these proceedings have been quite stagnant. We're here to help expedite this process. And our first order of business will be to remove you and the incompetent District Attorney Campbell from these proceedings. The minute attorneys, Darden and Omen, were brought in, well, they got District Attorney Campbell and Judge Scoggin barred from all of the grand jury proceedings. This move finally helped get the ball rolling on the investigation into Cricket's case. Finally, friends and co-workers of Cricket's were questioned as well as city and county officials. Luther Mosley was brought in for questioning, along with Cricket's boss, Bob Ash, and his wife. Jerry Newsom was also quizzed extensively on his interactions with Cricket. Cricket's friends and co-workers were very forthcoming with their information, and the grand jury was able to put together a loose timeline of Cricket's last known night. The jury spoke with several city and county officials as well, with much worse luck. Almost every statement made was contradicted by someone else. It was hard to take anything as fact. Some officials even refused to testify or say anything other than, no comment. One jury member described it by saying, a politician can talk for 30 minutes and not say a word. There was a tremendous reluctance of county employees to respond to questions, and their statements felt coached. The jury was being given the runaround, and they knew it. The most suspicious character, as far as they were concerned, was Sheriff Happy. When questioned, the sheriff provided an alibi and stonewalled any other questions the jury had regarding his investigation. But as the jury would soon learn, Happy's alibi wasn't as airtight as they'd been led to believe. In fact, he had actually spoken to Cricket Kugler on the day of her disappearance. Coming up... The jury dissects Happy's alibi, and the murder of Cricket Kugler snowballs into a political scandal. Now, back to the story. In May of 1949, a grand jury was charged with examining the police investigation into Cricket Kugler's death, and so far had failed to come up with any answers. After being stonewalled by public officials, they discovered that Sheriff Happy Apodaca the man responsible for leading the investigation did not have an airtight alibi, as he had claimed. Happy testified that he had not seen Cricket on March 30th, or during the early morning hours of March 31st, the day of her disappearance. Yet his testimony was immediately contradicted when more than one eyewitness testified to the grand jury that they had in fact seen Happy in town with Cricket on March 30th. Happy said that he'd driven two girls to a welfare home in Albuquerque early on March 31st. Because of this, he claimed he was already on his way out of town at the time of Cricket's last sighting, around 3 a.m. But Happy's timeline didn't add up. The drive should have only taken four to five hours. So if Happy had left at the time he'd claimed, 
he should have arrived between 7 and 8 a.m. The welfare home superintendent, Florence Perkins, corroborated that Happy did drop the girls off on March 31st, but said that they arrived late, at around 2 in the afternoon. If Florence Perkins was correct, it meant that Happy didn't leave Las Cruces until much later than he'd claimed, and that he was in Las Cruces at the time of Cricket's disappearance. With Happy's alibi in tatters, rumors that he was responsible for Cricket's death began to fly. People in Las Cruces were quick to point out that the city's police cars were all black in color. It's likely that Happy would have been driving one on March 30th. Could this have been the mysterious dark-colored car that Cricket's friend, Luther Mosley, and police officers Flores and Lucero testified Cricket got into? The town speculated that it was. Rumors were also swirling that Cricket had been pregnant with Happy's baby. Happy was married with children, and such an occurrence could have been devastating to his career and his home life, giving him a potential motive for the murder. Amidst this speculation, news of the sheriff's corruption had spread throughout the state, landing Happy in even more hot water. On June 8, 1949, former Las Cruces judge Sam Pearson came forward with a shocking story with reporters about Sheriff Happy. He recounted the claim of a Canadian woman who had accepted a ride from Happy not long after Cricket's disappearance. She told Pearson Sheriff Happy had driven her to an immigration office to get paperwork sorted out. On the return trip, Happy suddenly pulled his vehicle a good distance off the road. The woman alleged that Happy assaulted and raped her twice in the back of his car before driving back into town. Then... He threatened to kill her if she told anyone. But the unidentified woman eventually told Sam Pearson. Pearson claims he reported the attack to District Attorney Campbell, who took no action. Campbell allegedly told Pearson that he would never prosecute anyone on the testimony of a woman who didn't report such an incident immediately. Pearson explained to Campbell that the woman had been silent because she feared for her life. Still... Campbell never pressed any charges or took any action against his buddy, Sheriff Happy. The accusations against Happy didn't stop there. On June 17th, Finley reported that a teenager had accused Happy of raping her repeatedly during the previous summer. And on June 24th, yet another teenage girl came forward via the Sun News, accusing Sheriff Happy of trying to sexually assault her. The sheriff was now facing three charges of sexual misconduct in less than a month. Could Happy have assaulted Cricket, too? The grand jury was more determined than ever to keep digging. The jury started by subpoenaing Happy's bank records. Happy had a reputation for looking the other way when it came to illegal gambling and was always rubbing elbows with state officials the jury suspected that he had been accepting bribes to ignore criminal activity. Sure enough, large sums of money, upwards of three times Happy's monthly salary, had been finding their way into his account. Happy had no explanation for these lump deposits. While the grand jury was now certain that Happy was being paid off, they needed more definitive proof if they wanted to make a move on the sheriff. What started out as an investigation into Cricket's murder case evolved into a massive conspiracy and corruption inquiry. The jury wanted to know why state officials had been so silent about their relationships with Cricket. If the sheriff of their town was that crooked, how much higher did the corruption go? And how did Cricket's death figure into it all? As the days passed, more witnesses shared accounts of Cricket's ties with Santa Fe politicians. It was commonly known that she ran around with some pretty high rollers. If Sheriff Happy or someone else in law enforcement was accepting gambling payoffs, it seemed plausible that she could have known about those too. It seemed possible that Cricket had simply known too much about the corruption in her town. All the question-dodging of state officials also suggested that they were trying to cover something up. 
The inexperienced grand jurors took it upon themselves to be the harbinger for justice of their sleepy town. And no one was going to stop them. Hedge your bets, folks. The cards are hot tonight. Police! Party's over. Everyone out if you know what's good for you. On June 23rd, the grand jury led coordinated police raids on several suspected gambling establishments. One member from the jury accompanied each team of police, striking simultaneously at 10 o'clock at night. Several arrests were made that night, and all four establishments were temporarily shut down. Three of the four owners would later be found guilty and fined hundreds to thousands of dollars. One owner would even serve jail time for his numerous violations of the law. Oddly enough, only days before the grand jury raids, Judge Scoggin had ordered Sheriff Happy and the police to raid the very same establishments. But when they arrived, everything seemed to be above board. Very little illegal activity was found, and no arrests were made. It was only after Judge Scoggin and Sheriff Happy were left out of the raid conversations that any evidence of public gambling was found or arrests made. The grand jury was now a force to be reckoned with and on a mission to bring down corruption. Thanks to Finley's reporting, tales of their bold moves made their way into Time magazine and the New York Times. It didn't take long for them to catch the attention of the FBI as well. The jury had uncovered serious corruption in the new Mexican government, and now the FBI had names to investigate. By the end of June 1949, the grand jury had nearly completed its deliberations. The jurors, believing Judge Scoggin to be crooked, refused to share their findings with him. They requested a judge from outside their judicial district to hear them. Supreme Court Chief Justice Charles R. Bryce acquiesced. He sent Justice James McGee to take Scoggins' place to hear the jury's report. But the night before he traveled to Las Cruces, Judge McGee got a phone call he would never forget. Hello? Is this Judge McGee? Yes, you're going to have to speak up. I can barely hear you. If you go to Doña Ana County tomorrow, I can assure you you'll come home in a casket. Despite the threat, Judge McGee went to Las Cruces and heard the grand jury's report. On June 24th, one day after McGee's arrival, Sheriff Happy Apodaca found himself in court again. This time, he didn't seem so confident. The court has heard the grand jury's findings and approves the request to indict Alfonso Apodaca on 10 counts. You are being indicted with the crimes of permitting and participating in gambling, demanding and receiving illegal funds, adultery, and gross immorality. There's evidence to suggest you have failed to account for money coming into your hands as sheriff and that you drink on the job. Now wait just a minute. The jury also indicts you with 22 charges of gross negligence, including failure to take any steps toward locating Cricket Kugler in the days immediately following her disappearance and for failure to protect possible evidence at the scene of Cricket Kugler's hastily initial burial. It is my recommendation that you be removed from your post as sheriff immediately. On July 1st, Sheriff Happy was ordered out of his job. He couldn't be permanently fired from his position until a removal trial took place, but it was a start. An acting sheriff was appointed in the interim. Energized from the success of their previous indictments, the grand jury returned 29 more indictments on July 7, 1949. Most of them were for liquor law or gambling violations. All of the bars and cafes that served cricket alcohol were fined, and several government officials were indicted for their cooperation or complacence with said violations. The grand jury also heavily criticized the unprofessional behavior Judge Scoggin and District Attorney Campbell exhibited during the hearing. They were blasted for their failure to uphold gambling laws and for refusing to act on reports of serious criminal offenses. Several state police officers, including Police Chief Beasley, came under scrutiny for failing to uphold the laws of the land. 
Most notably, officers Flores and Lucero were criticized for their gross negligence and incompetence on the night of Cricket's disappearance. Several members of the grand jury and their lawyers received death threats before the hearings concluded. Many also suffered financial hardships after living off the meager wages that they were paid while serving. Still, they persisted. After several months of deliberations, the grand jury concluded in November of 1949. In their closing statement, the grand jury summed up their experience to the El Paso Herald Post. The deplorable conditions into which law enforcement had fallen in Doña Ana County was apparent immediately at the beginning of our work. The records of the official Cricket Coogler investigation were extremely meager and of very little value to us. The officials themselves were able to add little to the records. We sincerely regret that we were unable to determine just who was responsible for these crimes. Even though Sheriff Happy was indicted, he would never stand trial for his sexual misconduct. The trial for his removal as sheriff ended in a mistrial due to a hung jury, and he was reinstated on October 6, 1949. He'd been out of office for just over two months. However, Happy formally resigned from his duty five days later, after making a deal with District Attorney Campbell. Subsequently, all the charges against Happy were dropped. Law enforcement's mistreatment of Wesley Byrd wasn't made public until July 13, 1950, when a Las Cruces waitress gave reporter Walt Finley a tip about one of our customers. Finley sat down for lunch, and his waitress pointed toward a man in a back booth. She told Finley he had a very interesting story to tell. After a few questions and a pancake platter incentive, Bird recounted the tale of how Sheriff Happy and his men tortured him in the desert in hopes of coercing a confession out of him. Finley published Bird's account in the El Paso Herald Post, which garnered attention from law enforcement. Word even reached FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, and formal charges were pressed against Happy, Beasley, and Roy Sandman for violations of civil rights. In an unprecedented decision, Happy, Beasley, and Sandman were found guilty of human rights violations and conspiracy to violate civil rights. This was the first time any police officer had ever been convicted of violating civil rights. The three men were sentenced to a year in prison but were allowed early release. Wesley Byrd chose not to sue for damages and moved to North Carolina in hopes of forgetting Las Cruces. After the elections of 1951, the new judge in Doña Ana County tried Jerry Newsom again for Cricket's murder. Happy testified that he still believed Newsom to be the killer, even though he had tried to coerce confessions from several other men. The trial lasted only four days, and little to no new evidence was presented. The jury quickly found Newsom not guilty, and the matter was officially and finally dropped for good. No other suspects were ever brought in for the murder of Cricket Coogler, and her case went cold. The family resigned themselves to the fact that they would probably never find out who was responsible for taking Cricket's life. Meanwhile, reporter Walt Finley was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of Cricket Coogler's case. Without his reporting, the world would have never known about the corruption inside the New Mexican government. However, some of that corruption remained. Sheriff Happy went on to a career in public office. Years later, he was removed from his position as an elected magistrate judge because of judicial misconduct. Over 50 complaints were filed against him, and it was believed he had rigged his own election. Cricket's mother, Ollie Kugler, lived in Las Cruces for the rest of her days. She died in her home at the age of 87, never knowing who killed her daughter or why. During her funeral, her home was broken into. Strangely, the thief only took papers and records that had to do with Cricket's case. The burglar was never identified. Almost 30 years after Cricket's murder, it would seem like someone was still trying to cover their tracks. However, the people of Las Cruces never got answers to what happened to Cricket Coogler. Though some remained staunch in their opinions that her death involved some of the highest-ranking state officials at the time. Whatever the case, 
her story has become part of town lore. Diners still chirp about cricket over patty melts and milkshakes and some of the same greasy spoons she used to work at. With so little evidence, it's difficult for us to come to our own conclusions. That said, I'd put my money on Sheriff Happy as Cricket's murderer. His failure to investigate is highly suspicious, and he had a reputation for assaulting women. It seems like Cricket met her demise at the hands of one or more high-ranking Santa Fe officials. Cricket's death would have created a huge, possibly career-ending scandal for anyone in public office, and I think Happy was paid very well to help make the problem disappear. But I don't know if I can pinpoint any one person for Cricket's murder. It was probably a conspiracy. Whatever the case, it seems unquestionable that greed and power ultimately contributed to Cricket's death. She'd had to grow up fast to survive and got tangled in a web of corruption that was much bigger than she'd ever imagined. Ironically, her death spoke louder than words ever could. The mystery behind Cricket Kugler's murder catapulted the corruption in New Mexico into the spotlight. It not only highlighted crooked state and elected officials, but actually led to some of them being held accountable for their actions. And perhaps one day, someone will be held responsible for her murder. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. For more information on the Cricket Kugler case, amongst the many sources we used, we found Paula Moore's book, Cricket in the Web, the 1949 unsolved murder that unraveled politics in New Mexico. Extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Vanessa Pegram and stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Sky King, Harris Markson, Heston Mosier, Steve Pinto, and Mani Brahman. Uh-huh.